I'm Claire Manship. And I'm Ian Brodsky. And this is The Thing That Happened This Week. The show where everyone brings a story from the past seven days and we break it down. So please, no flash photography and please unwrap your candy now. Next up, we have a conversation with Christina Libby, and you'll hear all about her job titles, too. Oh, yeah. She's been through a lot. She's, in the In the best way. She's done so much. And every time, you'll hear it, but every time she mentions one of her colleagues or friends, her accolades just go up and up and up. Yeah, and you can't see it, especially during a podcast interview, but every time she brought up one of her new friends, Claire and I were looking at each other like, well, of course. Of course that's your friend. Of course she's got friends in incredible places. I know, such high places and so widespread. She's really well-liked and you'll like her too. Absolutely. Guys, we have a very special guest with us now on the phone. She is an incredible woman. We were connected to her through Elisa Benson, who you just heard a little bit earlier. She just left five years as the head of consumer PR at Microsoft to pursue her side hustle turn job full time, CEO and founder of the Social Works Co. and the author of You Don't Need Social Media Unless You're Doing It Right. Please welcome Christina Libby. Hi, Christina. Hi there. Good morning. Good morning. We are so excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So Elisa says hi. We had an amazing conversation with her too. <laughs> she had nothing but wonderful things to say. Um, let's talk a little bit about the book. You, I've been reading the, the blog as well. And um, we saw that you say that social media campaigns should be, quote, efficient, effective, and strategic. What do you find are some common social media gaps when small businesses are getting started? Like, what platforms aren't they utilizing for the goal of efficient, effective, strategic? Yeah, so um, so it's really interesting, I think, when small businesses get into the space of social media, is that they just do it in a way that's overwhelming, right? I mean, most of us who run a business are just on the hustle, right? You're, You're really putting in, like, you know, 28-hour days, and so you're working so much all the time, and then everyone has been told, like, oh, you have to have social media, you've got to be on social media, and yet, for most businesses, they don't need to be on all social media platforms all the time doing all of the things that, that are out there, right? And so, for me, when I talk to businesses about social, what I really talk about is the fact that you need to be incredibly strategic about how you're spending that time because you want social media to really pay off for you. You want to have a positive ROI. And if you're spending two hours a day on social media, that time is, I guarantee, not as well spent as if you're actually trying to directly sell whatever your product is. And so for most people, when you're thinking about really strategic, efficient, effective campaigns, what that is is about being incredibly targeted. And so that means understanding the goals of your business, which, you know, I talk about this a lot in the the book, but it's a lot about sales, right? So you really need to understand what your sales goal is and then how you can effectively mobilize on social media to go against that business goal and then to do it in a targeted way, which might be, just being active on one platform. It might be just engaging a series of influencers who can act on your behalf. It, it, it might just be um, really targeted social media advertising. But the, but the goal is to be as simple um, as possible and as targeted as possible to be as effective as possible. 
Yeah, we're even going through that with the podcast right now. Like you said, spending just a couple hours a day not might not be the best use of your time. And we're finding it's really hard, one, to get the message out there, but two, to monitor all the different platforms between, you know, fun ones like Twitter and Snapchat to kind of the the ones where announcements are made like Facebook and SoundCloud. Like it gets really overwhelming. Absolutely. And I mean, what it really is, is you need to get hyper crisp on who your audience is, right? right? Like, are you trying to reach millennials? Are you trying to reach Gen Z? Are you trying to reach, you know, the 30 plus audience? Are they men? Are they women? What are they interested in? And then I really suggest limiting the number of platforms you're on, in part because of exactly what you're talking about, right? It's overwhelming. There's too many things to do. It's hard to be really effective on Facebook and Instagram and SoundCloud all at the same time. And to be honest, they're not all going to be effective for you, right? So in the beginning, you might be testing, you know, what are the different channels that are out there? And then really seeing where are you getting a response? And, you know, what channels are driving more listeners to the podcast? What channels are are getting people to talk about the podcast on social? And then streamlining it. You might decide to get off Facebook altogether or to put all of your energy on Twitter because that's where you're going to see the big results. I know when different people talk about it, it kind of depends on where you're coming from. I'm thinking about Elisa, for example, you know, who heads up um, the 17 Digital site, right? right? They do all the channels all the time because they're constant content producers, right? You all are content producers, but if you're not producing a new podcast episode every single day, you only have so many things to talk about. So I think it's really figuring out, limiting that space um, in which you're talking about, being really clear on who that audience is, and then making sure you're understanding exactly how that transfers over to the podcast, and and then using that to fine-tune how much time you should be spending on those channels. So you talk a lot about um, building on isolated goals for a bigger vision. Um, can you talk a little um, bit about how... Uh, you do do this for yourself or how you did this for yourself in creating your own uh, Social Works Co. And what advice would you have for the people like us who are just starting to build something? Yeah, I think it's really important when you're starting to build something to think about what it is that you ultimately want to do in the world, right? Um, whether, and, and that's going to change a lot throughout time. Um, one of the most favorite things I ever heard um was, I'm going to forget his name right now because I'm so horrible with names, but he uh, read a book called Platform. His first name is Michael. You can find him through that information. He was, um, he was talking recently, and he said something that I found quite astounding, and he said that on average, people spend 22 full days planning their wedding. Oh, and my goodness. Like, really? Not, right. Isn't that crazy? But then less than two hours for planning their lives, right? Like, who do you want to be for the world? What does that, what does that mean? Right? Like, how do you want to show up? And that's ultimately a question about what is the vision of what you want to do for the world. And I think it's something that is difficult to arrive at. One of the tools that I often recommend to people is this book by Dan Zadra called Five. And it's um, a book that helps you sort of think about planning five years ahead into the future. And if you've never done an activity like that of figuring out sort of, you know, who you want to be for the world, this is a really great place to start. And for me, I did this book about three years ago, and it involves writing, like, a personal mission statement in the same way that a company has a mission statement. And I realized that my mission statement at that time, when I really um, isolated it down to the smallest thing, was that 
I wanted to help people think bigger. Um, and that I have sort of a unique capacity in helping people take their thoughts and think about how to expand them, which is really what started my interest in side hustles because I realized that I could help people who had a small passion think about maneuvering it into, into a bigger vision. And so I used that to think my way outside of the corporate track that I was on to be like, how how can I help do this with other people? And what that meant was a lot of um, mentoring in the entrepreneurship space. It meant a lot of teaching, which ultimately led me into a teaching position at the University of Florida, which sort of gave me a little bit of boost in credibility to really go out there and to write this book and then to go out there and actually leave, um, leave Microsoft on my own. In the process of doing all that, I actually went through another kind of like visioning exercise of my own when I realized that while I still felt that that was a core competency, one of the things that I'm most interested in right now is the massive amount of income inequality in America and the fact that so many people um, have no wealth, right, meaning they have more debt than assets, and and the statistic is actually that 47% of people have no wealth. And so that started me in a new direction where I realized that sort of all of the things that I was interested in were ultimately about this idea of creating wealth equality. Um, And that actually is a fundamental part of launching a new uh, app to connect influencers with businesses. And what that really is all about to me at the end of the day is helping create um, more opportunities for more people to make money or for people to spend money in a way that's more equitable. And so having that vision, that idea of sort of the impact that I wanted to make in the world helps me make a lot more, um, sort of a lot more tactical decisions as to how I should spend my time, what's important to me. And I truly think that even if I don't necessarily get all the way to a specific vision, um, it helps me to make the right steps along the way. And it also makes all of those uh, sort of smaller goals that you set as you get to your vision, it makes them um, more manageable, right? I think some people get so caught up in the, like, you know, we've got to have a, a thousand followers on Facebook because that means we're going to be successful, or we need to do $20,000 in sales because that means we're going to be successful, rather than thinking about the really big picture. And so if you don't quite hit your number, that's okay because it's, it's for this longer-term uh, goal and this longer amount of planning. Um, and so I think that's really why this sort of act of thinking bigger is more impactful, and, and that's how I've done it to, to get to where I am now. Well, I'm inspired. Yeah, I am. T- I mean, <laughs> no, I really, I mean, like, you have such, girl, like, you have such a hustle. I love that about you, especially with the app. Congrats on the app. Yeah. Thank you. It's not launched yet, but we're hoping in November. Well, I all have right. I have a feeling I'm going to use it. I need wealth management advice at all times. Exactly. <laughs> well, well, and it's not really that. So there's actually, if you're looking for wealth management advice, I want to recommend this woman. Um, her name's Ashley, and she runs uh, a blog and a site called um, The Fiscal Femme. What the app is actually going to do is... Right now, so influencer, like working with influencers, right, is a big part of social media. Right. Um, and I think a growing and escalating part of it, in part because we're also inundated by the noise in our social media channels from brands and, and things like that. And so brands right now, when they work with influencers, are actually doing it in a way that their research argues is ineffective. So brands are going to the top tier influencers. They're going to those influencers because 
those are the ones they can find, right? Those influencers aren't actually as effective at converting um, recommendations into sales as mid-level influencers. So, you know, someone who's like got a little bit more street cred than your mom, but, you know, isn't up there with Kim Kardashian. So I would say all of us are in that mid-level influencer space where we have an audience of people that we influence, and we probably have online and offline influence. And so um, the Harvard Business Review put out a study, like, about mid-level influencers. There's a bunch of other resources. But the data proves that mid-level influencers are actually substantially more effective in converting a product recommendation into a sale. And so what the app does is it ultimately will create an influencer marketplace um, for influencers of all levels, but the focus is really on mid-level influencers and allowing businesses to connect and purchase from them directly. Because right now, if a business wants to find an influencer, other than doing something like a Google search, it's a really difficult process. So they have to hire an agency. Agencies are really expensive. And so then at the end of the day, the businesses aren't getting the money out of it that they want. They're not getting the return out of it that they want for the money spent. And then a lot of these mid-level influencers aren't being able to make money off of what they're doing on social media. So we want to break the model a little bit. We want businesses to find influencers that are truly effective. So like a coffee shop in Harlem, most effective for them to find, you know, five mid-level influencers who live in Harlem who like coffee, who are the age of their demographic, which right now would be pretty difficult for them to find. And then we also want influencers to be able to monetize the value that they've accrued in creating a social following um, at a level where right now they might not be able to if they're not actually rising to the top of whatever algorithm it is that people are using to search for them. So uh, that was a long-winded explanation, but that's um, actually what the business, what the app is for. So not good for business advice, but hopefully good for helping people um, sort of make or more effectively spend their money. Wow. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I mean, it's funny you mentioned a coffee shop in Harlem because that's where we sit and edit these episodes yeah. all the time. I bet so I, we did the planning. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny, like, I, I, you know, I'm an artist, but most of the people there are students or freelancers. And I, I sometimes take a minute and look around the room and I'm like, I wonder how these people are branding themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what are effective forms of brand? I think Ian wants to talk on this. Yeah, um... Because I, you're such a social media influence, and I've like I know I have my opinions, but what are your opinions on the use of hashtags and uh, that in relation to branding? And like, what do you think makes a good hashtag? And uh, can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, so uh, I think a good hashtag is one of two things: it's either clever or it's just like incredibly straightforward, right? Right. Um. I think it's hard for most brands to do clever. I have a bunch of reasons I think this is true, but I think in large part, people who run social media um, channels, uh, a lot of companies got those jobs because either they were young and people thought they got social, or they were older people who had been in marketing and wanted to be on sort of a hot, sexy thing. And I don't think the people who are actually creating social media content or creating social media campaigns in-house are necessarily the right people to do it. I don't think they're creative enough. Um, And so I think clever is then really difficult and can often backfire in the face of those companies. And so I often think it's best to just go with something that's really straightforward um, and easy to measure, something that people will naturally use as a hashtag, which is, you know, something like your business name or um, 
most mostly I think your business being somehow included in it is often the best way to do it and that it's not it's not like super interesting right but I think for most people they're looking for the very literal thing I think sort of as businesses evolve in this space um one of the models that I'm really looking to sort of help businesses think about and helping people work on in a different way and it was actually um something that kind of came up as a conversation that I had um, with a good friend who runs Blissful Media. Her name's Barbara, and she was talking about this idea of, like, what if our relationships with influencers wasn't so transactional? What if companies actually hired, you know, four or five influencers to work with them on a consulting basis, right? And then those would actually be the people they would go to to run media campaigns. And I think if you were to bring those influencers a little bit closer and house those people who spend you know, all of their days making their brand on social media, then those people can help you actually make really clever campaigns. But but without that, I just I think it falls down. What what do you think about it? I we actually align on that pretty like evenly. Um because I I I feel like I've been looking at Twitter since it sort of like started and I feel like I've just seen hashtags just get out of control and inefficient. Like, if I see a hashtag that's more than, yeah. like, four or five syllables or words, then I'm like, that's not a hashtag. That's a sentence without spaces and, gra- and grammar. <laughs> so, like, I'm with you. Like, yeah. when we were starting out on um, our podcast, like, because it's called The Thing That Happened This Week, that's a lot of words. It doesn't really fit nicely. So we were thinking about how to sort of get, like, this quote-unquote brand across in, like, a really efficient like specific and true way yeah we have this joke yeah i think that's right yeah we have this joke where um ian and i always joke like hashtag blast hashtag give it up hashtag for the lord hashtag (laughs) and then but then all of a sudden like it becomes like hashtag i love hashtags don't you know you love hashtags hashtag the part of it right is like people just created a hashtag so they had a measurement tool and so that you know so we've seen that totally spin out of control and I really, I mean, I encourage people to use a hashtag because it is a great measurement tool. At the same time, you know, it's sort of not the be-all and end-all. I feel like I spend people, people spend so much time thinking, what's the hashtag? And not enough time thinking, like, why am I doing this on social media? And how is it actually, like, effectively going to um, to get a result for my business that means my business can stay open longer, right? Which means that I can sell something. Right. Well, and you mentioned um, the the amount of time people put into weddings. Like the wedding hashtag has such a, a stigma about it now. Like if you get it wrong, like you're you're stuck with it, and it's a bad omen. And yeah, yeah, that I think is like one of the really. I think it's so strange, but I, I mean, it's not part of this larger thing, right? Like we're all sort of sold on this idea of weddings, right? It's a multi billion dollar industry, and we all think it's going to be this like moment and sort of the crowning achievement of the rest of our lives and one of my favorite things lately I've been to an untold amount of weddings this summer and so many I didn't even go to is when people um actively are like don't uh, don't social media my wedding right like don't right. you just hmm. care on social media and I think that there is an interesting kind of movement in that as well right which is we use, we're seeing two things in social media, and one is just, like, the extravagant sort of drive to fame, right, where, you know, we all want to be famous, but there's no real mark on it, so the only thing we can do is, is to see if we get more likes from our friend, than our friends on similar photos, or do we have more followers, 
And then we're also seeing this sort of cultural backlash in social media, which is, you know, people who aren't going to be on Facebook or they delete their Facebook account or, you know, they're deciding that social media isn't a place for moments like their wedding, that kind of thing. So I think one of the really interesting things about this space is to see where it evolves in, you know, the next decade. And as computing technology changes significantly and the way we engage with websites changes, do things like social media change and and how important and predominant does it continue to be for our culture is a pretty like academically interesting thing to continue to look at. Amazing. I think I think you have such insight. Like it, you can't see it over here, but every time you mention a new point, Ian and I are like, like nodding ooh. our heads vigorously. <laughs> Our next question, we can pivot a little bit. I just want to know, you know, I'm a big reader of uh, female autobiographies, empowering works. Like I'm looking across the room right now and I have Wednesday Martin, Sheryl Sandberg and and, yeah, and Mindy Kaling. Like who are the women that you read about that inspire you? Like who do you derive social media power from when you see them tweet? Like what lady, what ladies give you drive? Um, so one of my books of all time is this book called Beaches for Hawk by Helen McDonald. Um, it is a book about death and falconry. So it is not the most like, it's, it's incredibly inspiring. It's a hard read um, and it's amazing. Like just the most beautiful writing you will have ever seen. Um, and it's really interesting because she doesn't have sort of a glossy coated scene of life, right? She has a She's a successful writer, um, and she's really into falconry, and it's a really interesting look at how um, we stay human by bringing wild things into our lives. And so I think um, that's an incredibly important and impactful book for people to read. Um, in terms of other people who really inspire me, I uh, love kind of connecting myself with and surrounding myself by just friends that I think are super inspiring. Um, I have a really wonderful friend, her name's Andrea Dunlop. Uh, she wrote a, book that, a fiction book that came out um, this year, and she's finishing a second fiction book um, as well. Her book's called Losing the Light. Um, I uh, am really good friends with this woman, Jennifer Bonschringer, who's so, uh, she's the executive editor of More Magazine, and I find her really inspiring. She just recently wrote a really interesting piece on Medium, um, as well, that I encourage people to check out. And then I think I, for me, I'm just really interested in women who just kind of do different things. Like, growing up, my hero was Madeline Albright, because I just felt like she manages this really interesting mix of being incredibly smart and talented with being really put together and kind and lovely. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know if things sort of come to mind right now is this sort of mix of, like, people I admire from a really literary perspective as well as just some close friends who I just find have are unabashedly willing to have opinions. Um, and then sort of women who lead in government or um, or sort of other fields that I think are particularly tricky and, and require this really nice mix of being incredibly smart um, as well as really well-balanced. Yeah, well, and especially, you know, and we talked about it a little bit with Elisa, but the current political climate only makes you want to, like, lady power up more. Like, mm-hmm. it makes you want to just, like, 
right? Like it just, I, you know, and no matter what you what you think of Hillary Clinton and even Jill Stein, like it's it's a brave thing to do to put yourself in in a ring of men that are, you know, just they don't get it sometimes. Yeah, I have to actually give major props to Elisa on this one because I uh, had actually been a Hillary supporter for a long time um, because politically we actually share a lot of similar opinions. But it wasn't until I was having dinner with Elisa and then Dina Kaufman who had the social media for Elle magazine and they were talking about sort of their really openly and honest opinion about um, feminism, right? They were just like, they're like, yeah, I'm a feminist. And and they really spent a lot of time talking to me about why they support Hillary. And it was a fascinating moment for me because I realized I wasn't vocal enough. Like, I was raised in a family where we didn't talk about politics all the time, where, you know, and then I felt like I had this place in social media that was so connected with my corporate um, world that I didn't know if I thought it was okay to talk about those it's like those things online, right? Like, and to really sort of talk about all of these other women. And so Elisa was just like, yeah, and, right? Like, she just, like, kind of thought, like, I don't even know why you have stories. And it opened up my mind about the fact that, like, we have to talk more. And we have to talk more about, like, critical, cultural, contemporary issues. And, um, and yeah, and I just found that to be actually, like, incredibly fascinating because I often advocate for more women like in fiction writing or sort of more women in other parts of the world but regardless of where you stand on any political issue I think like you do have to admit that it's just like pretty badass that in less than a hundred years right like women went from not being able to vote to a woman now like you know really strongly running for political office and that opens up a whole world of opportunity for people to just think about what their possibilities are in the world in another place and like that's amazing. Like, it's amazing that women are taking those opportunities. And I think that's why I feel like it's so important to talk about things like being an entrepreneur or writing a book or even just, like, unabashedly talking about money. Like, that, that is okay because it helps more women see what's possible. Well, as a straight white man, no. Um, um, <laughs> sorry. Um, our final question for you... <laughs> well, and it kind of goes along with that. Ian was, uh, yeah, Ian has this great question. The, and this also goes back to one of uh, something you were previ- previously saying, and um, I know it's important for Claire and uh, I as well, but um, uh, what can you tell us about, like, your opinion on mentorship? Because you've been a professor, you've uh, spoken about uh, being yeah. a mentor, gathering mentors. Um, so what do you think about, like, that and your and the importance of being mentored or being a mentor? So I think that there are, like, two parts to that concept. And one is I think it's really important to offer your time to other people to give them value when you can, right, which is essentially, like, what being a mentor is about. But I think that culturally we've kind of, like, changed, like, we've given people the wrong idea about mentorship, right? Like, And because very rarely does it work out in a way where, like, you have a mentor who, like, goes through your your whole life with you and, like, helps guide you about things. And and I often think, especially in, like, corporate America, you get matched up with a mentor. And it's just, like, really strange. I remember I had a boss a few years ago at Microsoft, and I was saying, yeah, I think I need a mentor or something. I want to get ahead of my career, and I need help. And he came back to me with a list of these women. And I was like, actually... I don't, like, I don't need a female, right? Like, I don't need someone to mentor me with how to dress or sort of 
my, you know, whatever sort of like feminine qualities. I'm like, I actually need someone really senior. And because those people are all male, I, I need a male sponsor, right? Because that's sort of the way that you can really get your foot to the next level. And so I think when we think about mentorship, what we really need to think about is sponsorship. How do we find the people who can sort of help us achieve our goal in, in one instance? Um, and that's what I really actually love to do for people as well. Is I'm, I'm actually a horrible mentor. If you <laughs> like career coaching, I'm really bad at that. I'm awful. But if you come to me and you're like, I want X, I'm really good about leveraging my network and the opportunities that I've seen as be available to help that person achieve their next step. And also I think that's who's been most helpful to me in my life, where a mentor relationship has rarely ever worked. Probably in large part because I have a non-traditional way of approaching my career, but I I just think that's actually the most useful is that people can spend waste kind of a lot of time looking for a mentor when really they should just get super crisp on their goals and then figure out who has a sponsor or sponsors who can help me get to that step and and I think that's easier for a sponsor to understand as well. Totally, I think that it's and and the anecdote about. And maybe again, I'm just thinking about Hillary Clinton, like, Mm -hmm. it's great to align yourselves with other women, you know, like her, her new buddy now is Elizabeth Warren, like that they are thick, Uh they're thick as thieves. But it's also like she even says all the time, like, and of course, even though they may not understand what I'm striving for, I can't get there. You know, it's a boys club, like I can't get there without, you know, playing that game as well. You know, I think that's really interesting. I think we joked, Ian, when you were like, is the white straight male coming to the conversation? But I do, to me, it's incredibly important that when we think about women's rights, we think about people's rights. And that that means all of us working together, right? Like, it doesn't help me to only network with other women because I'm missing out fundamentally on understanding half of whatever the conversation is or whatever that moment is. And so... I derive a huge amount of pleasure from the male um, relationships that I have around me because they open my eyes in a totally different way to seeing a situation that I would have otherwise maybe misinterpreted or just only have understood 50% of. And so I think that that is something that we just can't forget is that our male allies and our male sponsors are just as important as our female allies and our female sponsors. And that, um, and that we need to figure that out. I think it comes with landmines um, that we also need to be sort of more vocal about. Um, I think a couple weeks ago, I was introduced to someone who I was really interested in talking to them about an academic subject. And in the course of the phone conversation that I had with him, he tried to ask me out. And I was just like... What? What? Yeah, but I was just like, but that's not... I want to talk to you about the thing I'm, like, academically very interested in and intellectually and possibly as a future part of some sort of career I do. And I'm so offended that you chose this opportunity to make some sort of, to make, like, a very clear sexual advance on me, right? And so I think that's one of the pitfalls that happens in trying to be as, as a woman, right? Like, as a woman trying to think, like, okay, so I also want to be totally inclusive of all of these people, but it's very rare, and it's never happened to me, that a woman would try and ask me out if I was approaching her about talking about an intellectual subject, and how disappointing it was that I approached this man, who I actually met through friends, right? 
um, and then was like, let's talk about this. I want to do this for my job. But then he tried to ask me out. And so I think that's one of those things that we don't talk a lot about in finding sponsors. As women, if we're looking for male sponsors, it often comes with the discomfort of whether or not there's like a sexual advance associated. And then also the stigma culturally in the company, if you have an older senior man who is sponsoring you and the way that other women think about you for that. So I think it's a really, really hard, tricky line for anyone to walk. And I think Hillary's actually done it quite well. I think there's another number of other senior women who have done it well. But I think any time you talk to a senior woman, she has an example of what I just told you, right? And so there's a lot of minefields in, in working in that space, I think, and in that, in that way. Oh my gosh. First off, I can't even believe that that, you know what? I can believe that that happened. Mm-hmm. That's what's so crazy. Like it, it blew my mind the moment it happened, but the more that like you settle into a story like that, you're like, oh yeah, of course that happened. Like those people, you uh-huh. know, they're going to be everywhere. And you, like you said, the perfect word for it is minefield. Like it's a, you yeah. know, game of chance. Yeah. And it's, you know, and I think probably 90% of the time, you know, you, people are totally cool with you. And then 5% of the time, you're like, hmm, this is a little bit awkward. And then 5% of the time, people cross the line, right? Right. Yeah. And also, like, learning how to, I mean, I would say, right, like, I'm in my mid-30s, and I did not handle the situation very well, right? And that there, I think for a large number of women, we still don't exactly know how to handle that situation. And... And that makes it tricky, and I think as a result, that's why so many people are just like, oh, well, I'll just network with a bunch of women, I'll do it that way, and then also reach a glass ceiling in that manner, right? Where, you know, no matter how well-connected you are, there are still things like, you know, getting to be CEO of a company or getting into Congress, right? Like, you, at some point in time, have to learn how to work in that space, and I think that's one of the reasons, right, like, Hillary gets really criticized for wearing pantsuits, but, like, she really <laughs> reduced her femininity so much to a point, and I wonder if, in part, it's because of she has to work within a, with a highly masculine structure. I don't know. That's, I'm totally guessing, but, um, but I think it's, it's interesting at large. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, and I think that's why everybody is making a, a big deal about her wearing white suits at the debates, because it's for the suffragette movement, which is mm. really... Right. Yeah, and I'm just like, oh, yes, girl, the subtle shade. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Where you're like, right? you're like, oh, you just perfected something. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so I think Ian will lead us into our pivot, our show's kind of main plot point. We don't want to <laughs> take up too much of your time, but thank you for, yeah, for your generosity. Yeah, thank you for all of this. Of course. So tell us about the thing that happened this week for you. So I spoke at the Dallas Entrepreneurship Center, Sunbeast here in Dallas. And I spoke about side hustles, which is really the thing I'm really passionate about for people who don't know your side hustle is anything you do on the side that could potentially evolve into a business or not. Um, But for most people, it's something they're testing out to evolve into a business. And I was speaking on stage and someone asked me, you know, how do you know when your side hustle is ready to make it into a company? And I was like, well, here's my calculus, and this is what I've always done. So I start a business, and I always have that hustle. And I grow my side hustle until I'm making the same amount of money as my business, and then I double it. And then I use that side hustle as a way to gain entry back into some type of corporate field 
but at a level or a couple levels higher than I was before. And I have done that a couple of times in my career to where I am right now. And right now, I don't want to go back to corporate America. I want to do something that I can become wealthy with. Like, I want to make money. And I don't think this is a crazy thing to say. But then after, after I gave my talk, we, you know, we had about 30 minutes of sort of social time with the attendees before the next talk started. And everyone who came up to speak to me after said, I've never heard a woman say she wanted to be wealthy. I can't believe that you said that. And then I would ask them about their businesses. And a number of women had these businesses. And they would say, well, well, I'm not really doing it to make money, or I don't really know if I need it. Like, I don't really need to make money. My husband has a job. And I was so floored by this that then I kind of talked about it to all kinds of other people and found out that no one talks about it. No one says, no females are actively out there saying that I want to be wealthy. And to me, it was the most shocking thing that happened to me this week. Wow. Oh, my God. at, like, the same time when you said, um, I don't think about that, my husband does it for me, Claire and I at the same time went like, ooh. <laughs> well, and the part that had my jaw on the floor was the concept, I mean, we'll, we'll go back and we'll hash it all out, but the concept of your side hustle becomes the main business when it surpasses the former project, and we're getting this podcast off the ground like, whoa, um, that's daunting. Yeah. But you can do it, right? As if you're thinking about it in that perspective, you can absolutely do it. Like there are so many ways to make money in this world, and most people start a side hustle thinking this is fun or this could grow into something, but they're not looking at it with like a dollar amount. Like when I am launching my business right now, I'm looking at it with a dollar amount. Like I have a goal that I want to hit and a vision for how to get there. And, like, and that's what I'm going to do, right? And so for you all, it's like a question of, do you want this podcast to make you $50,000? Or do you want it to make you $150,000? Well, you're not going to make that straight from advertising, right? So what is the point of view that you're going to take on the podcast so that you can grow it into something else, so that you can, you know, start speaking other places, so that you can make speaking fees, so that you can write a book, so that you can celebrate, like, whatever it is. Once you have that number goal in mind, you start to be able to think about what does this business actually have to be in order to reach that. And I think um, most people forget to ask themselves that question because they're doing a, a passion project or, you know, they're just kind of testing the waters. I think we're a little bit afraid to admit that we're doing it because we want to make money and then being really vocal about how much money it is that we want to make. Right. The women that you were approached by at the conference, they, they seem to almost... It almost sounds apologetic, like they that they were yeah. making some sort of exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, what... and this is something that I face a lot when I'm talking to female entrepreneurs is this idea that they have to apologize for wanting to make money or apologize for being wealthy. And the number of women I talk to who, yeah, and this happens to me a lot. It happened to me the other week. I had a woman from IBM who runs um, an entrepreneurship program here in Dallas, and she asked me, oh, well, do you want to have kids? And I said, oh, you know, right now I'm really focusing on starting this business. I'm not really sure. And and then I sort of said, I'm sorry in it. And she was just like, you just apologized for, like, wanting to grow a business. And I was like, oh, you're, you're right. I get that, which is something that so many women do see when they're talking to me. And it, was, it seems really, like, um, 
like apologetic that they wouldn't think that the money that their husbands made was enough or that, you know, they didn't think that the money they were making at their current job was enough, that they had to do this other thing. And, and that's not, that's not really what's happening, right? The idea is that you have an idea for something that you want to bring to life and that's amazing. And like, you should totally flash that on and be proud about it and talk about it all the time rather than having to apologize for the fact that you're pursuing a dream of your own sort of independent wealth or your own sort of independent creative outlet because that leads you to have more freedom, which means you have greater quality, which means you have more opportunity, right? Um, and so the apologetic nature of it is really, I think, super sad. And, like, we have to figure out culturally how we shift do you think that that might be rooted a little bit in like, I would align it with the same apologies some women make when they're more of a breadwinner in the household than the man is like that that's been a recent kind of shift statistically like do you think it's rooted in the same kind of concerns? I 100% agree. I was talking um, to a fabulous woman on Thursday uh, and she made a really astute observation that Dallas is surrounded in wife culture, um, which is this idea that you know, women still think you're, you're a wife, right? Like, that's your job primary. That's your first job. And that's the way many of these entrepreneurs describe themselves. That, oh, I'm a wife and I have a family and I have this XX cookie company or, or sort of whatever it is. And I think, you know, sort of the data is actually changing in the fact that um, I saw a recent study, and I'll try and find it and send it to you, about this idea that actually when women make more money, it doesn't negatively impact the family at all, but we've seen in the news this idea that it does negatively impact the family, right? That women are kind of shifting a gender balance when they do that and that's making family lives discordant. And so I do think people feel the need to apologize for that because they worry that it brings with it a bunch of negative social things for them trying to strive for and achieve their dreams. And, um, and they do, I think it's a part of our cultural narrative that is shifting as more women have more opportunity, but there are still large parts of, of our social culture that they just aren't ready to accept that um, in some way. It's just so interesting because I actually grew up in, um, my parents like were pretty evenly like the breadwinners, but my mom like exceeded my dad a little more. And it's funny because she just texted me when you were talking about that whole thing, but I never really grew up, like, immediately in that idea of what you call wife culture, and I've never heard of that, and I think that is so fascinating, and, like, it, it makes sense, but, yeah. Well, see, I grew up in the South. My dad was in the military, so my mother went into her marriage with my father with the expectation that she would never work, because if my dad needed to move us, yeah, so my mom hasn't worked since, you know, 84, 85. Wow. And she would pride herself deeply on being, you know, president of the officer's wives club. <laughs> like that was her, that, and that was her side hustle, but she saw it as like an accolade to my dad and not to her own work sometimes yeah. when she's running all these charities that, and stuff. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And I do think it's quite cultural. Um, I have a dear friend and her mom was also a military wife to a highly, like super successful um, officer in the military. And she was actually one of the most entrepreneurial, like, hardworking women, but she just did it in sort of this other way, right, which was in a little bit in service to her husband's career. But what I thought was really interesting around that was the way that she became more successful because she was so successful in what she did as well, right? Like, 
she grew the network for him outside of just his professional jobs that really helped him, which I'm sure your mom, you know, had a similar role to play in the family. And so I think, like, there is sort of this interesting cultural thing in which, like, being a wife is a really important part of a career. But if you choose to go outside of that and do something different because you have different aspirations, I would hope that socially we would also accept it as well. And do you think there is a difference based on where you are geographically in the U.S.? Like, I've lived in a bunch of places now, and I would say when I grew up in Maine, I don't know if I would have had any of these, like, I don't know if I would have even been aware about sort of, like, what it, just because I think Maine's a really poor state, and I think basically people have to work in a different way, but then in living in different parts of the U.S., you see that the culture has a really different impact on how people feel capable or whether or not they can go into entrepreneurship. And then I also think there's something very weird about, like, the Silicon Valley idea of entrepreneurship versus, like, small business ownership versus side hustles. And that is in large part dictated by the society that we're part of. And I think a part of what happens is that you need to have role models, right? Like, women need to see other women who are capable of doing this and still have a happy marriage in order to understand that you can still be an amazing wife. You can still, like, have that be your primary thing. But you can also still run a business that's successful without cannibalizing the first thing. And that that is something that is changing, but I think slowly changing. Right. Oh, gosh. I... You've given us so much to think about. Yeah, thank you. But even, but even that, it's like, you know, it, it, just talking about families, it gives such perspective. I think we, we, you know, in major cities get so wrapped up in our hustle and our day-to-day. And I forget, you know, sometimes you just forget to, like, reminisce on, even before you were born, like, where your family was coming from and what their side hustles were and, you know, all of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really funny. Like, my mom used to sell lemon bars when I was, like, in grade seven to the apple orchard bakery uh, down the street. And, like, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, right? But she had a little side hustle, and she always kind of did. And then when I was in my 20s, and she was then in her mid-50s, she finally opened her own business, right? And it's like, but she got done with sort of all the wife-mom things she really needed to do and then was able to explore it. But it's an interesting different way of thinking about you know, that's what worked for her in the society that she was part of in the place that she grew up. And so there are tons of opportunities for all of us. Um, but that sometimes we just get too caught up in only thinking you know, I think about the one way that we see right now. Wow. Totally. Well, thank Christina, thank you for everything. Thank you so much, Christina. I know I in our emails I was like, it'll be like fifteen or twenty minutes, but you are one of the most interesting people to talk to. Like we are we know your time is valuable and we appreciate having some of it. Absolutely. Of course. Christina, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, on Twitter, I'm at Christina Libby. Um, and then I have a website, ChristinaLibby.com. Um, and then also for the business things I do is um, the socialworksco.com as well. And then our new app, go to GetSoFood.com. And that should be out in the next couple. Perfect. Thank you. Well, thank you for everything. And we hope to talk to you soon. Absolutely. Have a great day. You have too. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. 
Oh my gosh, that was incredible. That was inspiring. Oh my gosh, she's so cool. Right? I'm like grabbing my face. I can't believe you how- are. Both Elisa and Christina are like the nicest people. I feel like we got like an invitation to the cool kids club. I know. I we moved from like the the kids table to the adult table. Yeah, right. Like yeah. it's gonna be a good Passover. I know. Oh, it is going to be a good Passover. I'm not even Jewish and I know it will be. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That being said, those women are super powerful, super cool. Christina plugged her own Twitter and everything. And uh, we said Elisa's before. Just go follow them. Please do. You'll learn so much. We learned so much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, now it's time for our quiz, Ian. All right. I'm going to quiz you first. Okay. First question, Ian Brodsky, what are you obsessed with right now? Okay, right now I'm obsessed with this video from a a little series called Obsessed with Seth Rudetsky. And so Seth Rudetsky is like one of these like massive Broadway names, this incredibly talented music director and piano player and at least used to, I don't know if he still does, would have Broadway singers come in and break down like songs that they would sing on, that they have sung on Broadway. So he has this one video with um, Haven Burton, who uh, is this actress on Broadway, and it was reenacting her audition for Disaster the Musical when it was off Broadway. And she sang Part of Your World, but the whole like funny catch of it was like her feet were folded up and she had a blanket covering them or something. So it looked like she just had no legs. <laughs> and she did the whole song like very angrily and like really As an angry mermaid. Kind of like that gets me. Like um what do you call them? What's the word again? Oh yeah. Fate <laughs> I'd ask them my questions and get some answers. Like, what's a fire? And why does it <laughs> And like she just belts high and riffs and it's amazing. So that's what I'm obsessed with this week because I'm about to choreograph The Little Mermaid for a bunch of children because the hustle. Working with kids is really fun. These are a good group of kids. Yeah, trust me. I've worked with some shitty kids and I think you have some good ones. These ones are good. Yeah, these ones are good. (laughs) Okay, question number two. Desert Island. Three foods you have to eat forever. Lifetime supply, but they're the only ones you can have. It would be like French baguette. Okay. Because for some, like, I'm just, I can never get enough of that. Who doesn't love a French baguette? And then it would probably be blueberries. Okay. Real talk. Do blueberries give you the farts? Blueberries are a very oxidized, antioxidant food. So they're supposed to give you the gas? I think they give you the farts. Like asparagus, yeah. I've never noticed that with blueberries, but I have noticed it with cheese, which is the third thing I would bring. What kind of cheese, though? Brie. I'd put it on for the your baguette. baguette. Exactly. You could also put blueberries on, on, on all of that. If like, you leave it out in the sun, it could melt down into exactly. a yeah, flatbread. Heck of French. Wow. Very French. I don't know. Is that very French? I'll find <laughs> out when I go to France. Right in France. If, you, if you're in France and you're listening to this. Let us know if we're completely <laughs> off base. <laughs> okay. Question number three. What are you watching slash listening to right now? I am watching a lot of At Midnight with Chris Hardwick. Mm. He is... Like, I don't want to say he's, like, my comedy icon because, like, I'm not a stand-up comedian, like, I'm... But I just love his work and his podcast and I love his show at midnight and because I've been so busy, I only, within the past couple days, were was able to catch up on all the episodes I missed and he's just so funny and all of his guests are just so funny. And I am listening to a lot of The Nutcracker, which you Oof. can see this December 30th and check it out at diynutcracker.com if we've purchased it yet. I know we have the domain. I don't know if we've put up the website yet though. So we'll find check out. it out. Dun, 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 dun. 
Okay, question number four. Who was the last person you texted that wasn't me trying to find out where I was when my phone died on the subway? It was my mom. And what did you say to honey? Um, I think I, I think I was just like, hey, um, I, I'm on my way back to the city now. Because she was texting me during these like auditions for this children's youth theater production of The Little Mermaid. Fun. And I'm like, Mom, I can't talk right now. And she's like sending me pictures of North Carolina and like Aww. the beautiful, like the beautiful sea that she lives by now. And I'm like, I get it. It's beautiful. <laughs> my, I'm in the suburbs right now. Every time I call my mom, she's like out on the dock watching manatees in Florida. Yeah. She's like, I have a Cosmo. I'm listening to the radio and I'm watching the manatees. What are you doing? I'm like, I can't afford my Starbucks. It's raining and I'm cold and tired. Yeah. <laughs> Miserable. <laughs> I want to go away forever. <laughs> okay, and question number five. One person living or dead that you wish well. I'm going to combine this with a shout out. I'm going to wish my friend Brittany Pierre well because... Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Because um, she's someone I've known for a long time. We've been through a lot and... We've and we've just been really great friends through all of it. And it was her birthday about a week ago from when this episode is coming out. Always like has always been one of the nicest people and one of like the most genuinely like kind hearted friends that I think any of us that have gone to college together have ever had. So big ups. That's a lucky friend to have. Oh yeah. I think that that's really nice when you like have a moment of gratitude for people in your life. Absolutely. Or even moments that you're happening that you don't feel obligated to like take pictures of or something. Mm-hmm. Just to like sit into a moment or a relationship and have an appreciation is so important. I had a moment of that this past week too where I was just like, here's all the things and people that I'm grateful for. And it was really cool. And it just like came out of nowhere. I think like I woke up in a good mood someday. Like, hello world. Thanks. <laughs> hello world. <laughs> exactly. It's Ian. It's me. It's I'm here. <laughs> That's the way that Ian sounds first thing in the morning. Exactly. And then it's his very voice Elder drops Cunningham. Into- <laughs> They're not going to know what that is. It's fine. Look it up. Okay. Quiz me. Okay. Um, 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 what are you obsessed with right now? I am obsessed with, uh, the other day I got paid and I finally went to Dwayne Reed and bought all the expensive soaps that I wanted to buy for a really long time. Isn't that the best feeling? Oh, it's so great. I bought, um, some fake nails. I gave myself some fake nails last mm. week. I got a coconut body scrub that I'm using every single night. It helps me sleep. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. I'm like grabbing myself right now <laughs> thinking about how good it smells. Um, I'm grabbing myself, grabbing myself it's, by the pussy. It's, it just got real graphic in here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, I refilled on Garnier Fructis, but I always try to like, I like the brand Garnier. This podcast brought to you by Garnier, but I read... I read often that... I read often. Did you know that? It's one of your greater qualities. Mm, yes, I'm so smart. Literate. Yes, very literate. Um, I've read oftentimes you're supposed to switch up your shampoo so that your hair doesn't become immune to like whatever the working powers of magic are in one brand or one type. So I stay within the Garnier family, but sometimes it's sleek and shine. Sometimes it's whatever the long and strong one. I'm wearing Grow Strong in my hair now. Yeah, so that, and then um, I bought some really good almond-smelling head and shoulders because my head gets itchy in the winter, mm. as heads are bound to do. All those hats, you just wear so many hats it's in true. the winter. Do you get hat hair? I don't get hat hair, but I'm really, but it's only because I'm really strategic about the days that it's up in a bun mm. versus the days that it's down. Like, I, I make sure 
that if I'm going to style it, then that's a no hat day and your ears mm. are just going to be cold, you know? Got but it. if it's up, then yeah, it's already going to be messy. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. So that's what I'm obsessed with right now is cool. soap. <laughs> Cleanliness. Cleanliness. Um, you are stranded on a desert island, and I'm going to ask you the same question. What are those three foods that you would that you could only eat for the rest of your life on this desert island? Okay, well, if it's deserted or desert, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if I get fat, so um, pepperoni pizza. Ooh. Yeah. Peach yes. cobbler. Ooh, yes. And I want to make the third one really good. My old answer used to be creme brulee because that was my favorite food until I had one too many creme brulees. And I was like, this food's kind of disgusting texturally. Uh-huh. So now, now I have to think of a better one. Um, and, oh gosh, it probably would be red wine. Counts. Yeah. I've been sober so long that now I'm having dreams about going to an island far away and eating junk food and drinking wine. Drinking red wine. wine. Gosh, guys, being sober is really hard. Like, it, for no, for just a personal choice, for just a, like to, to just get it done to see if you can do it or to lose weight or how, whatever reason you're doing it, it's hard. You miss alcohol all the time. Mm. I miss it all the time. I miss I it so much you. I have to take it to the desert island. <laughs> but I salute you for it because I think Ugh. it's a really strong choice. Thanks. I feel kind of gross about it, though, because, like, I, you know, it's like it's so hard to make plans with people when it, when it doesn't involve drinking. It's so True. hard. Yeah, so, I don't know. Maybe I'll drink again soon. I don't know. Maybe. Whatever. But I'm taking it to my desert island, exactly. honey. Exactly. Some Cabernet Sauvignon. It's good stuff. Oh, so I don't, good. I, I so don't bold really, and smoky. I don't even really like wine, but I like Cabernet. Yeah, a lot of people can't handle a good Cabernet Sauvignon because if it's made well, it should taste like like earth. <laughs> it should taste <laughs> it like earth. It tastes like good earth, old dirt. Earth, smoke, and leather. Like yes. all the things that no one wants. Right. <laughs> So yeah, that. Ooh. So what are you watching and listening to right now? I have made it to the fifth season finale of my rewatch of 30 Rock. Congrats. And this is the point where the show really starts to slow down. Oh, thank you. You congratulated me. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been working really hard at doing nothing and watching 30 Rock. But this is when the show really starts to... It, it's There's still two more seasons as a seven-season show, as any good show should do seven seasons, six or seven seasons. Um, I, not good show, but... Um, That's like the sweet spot. But like, wh- what do I mean? The sweet spot, I think, is four seasons of like, you got enough to love it, but l- like Heroes. Heroes was a show that I loved, but when it got to the fourth season, it was clearly time to be done with it. Mm. And they ended it mid-season, like, you know, with a bunch of cliffhangers that never got resolved. Really? But if the show has an opportunity to resolve itself I don't really mind getting through the rough seasons and right now the end of season five is where things start to slow down they have a celebration of the 100th episode um in two parts and then from then on it it starts to get slow Mm. but I'm appreciating that they're seeing it through to the end James Marsden's episodes are coming up and I'm really excited I love him he's so handsome and so talented he's great do you like how I sexually objectified him before I acknowledged that he's good at what he does it's fair that's how I rank everybody. Oh yeah, yeah. That's, that's Ian's only... handsome, thank and you. also he's a good business partner. Oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> that that's what I strive for. And I'm listening to. Um, we're just by the time this airs, it will be the day after the presidential election, which is terrifying. It is four days until the election, so I am rapidly listening to the NPR Politics podcast. Mm. Um, those down-ballot races are freaking me out, and there are even some here in the state of New York that I am very overwhelmed about some decisions for and some 
um, just local ordinance motions and things like that that I really want to read well. So listening to them break it down in a podcast where I can, I don't have to like read it to know what it means. Because they really, a lot of, um, we don't have one in New York this election, but in a lot of states during this election, they have motions on their ballots that are phrased weird. Like you vote no, but you mean yes. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah, and those are tricky. Like Prop 8, that was the whole issue with Prop 8 in California was you vote no to say yes. Like you you vote no to say that you are in favor of something. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, phrase it. You. They phrase it to trick you to get voters to. Yeah, the legislation is tricky. So yeah, NPR Politics podcast, and the Christmas music is back. Oh yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's after when Halloween. I, when I walked into the Starbucks the other day and was like, "Peppermint mochas are back," I'm like, "It's the most wonderful time of the year." No, but it actually is the most wonderful time of the year when I can get a chestnut praline latte. I love. Like this almost winter where it's like mm-hmm. almost the Christmas time, but like there's still like there's still like some remnants of the leaves falling off the trees and the colors and the fall weather that's like transitioning into winter like that. I love all that stuff. Totally. And who was the last person you texted before your phone died? Um, Not including me. I, okay guys, <laughs> I've been a little bad. I was texting my high school sweetheart that he might be mad at me for saying this, but whatever. Um, I, I'm i flirting it up with my high school sweetheart. Because you know when you like are single and the easiest person to reach out to is your ex? All right. <laughs> so I talk, to, I talk to Musa all the time, but um, I'm just, you know, flirting it up with him a little what? bit. Yeah, sure. You know, because I, I like him so much. I've always liked him so much. <laughs> for old time's sake. For old time's sake, but also for now time's sake. You know, like someone, when I was 18... I was such a different person than I am now. And no matter whether or not, like, I'm ever going to date this person again, age looks good on everybody. Like, it just makes everyone sexier. Mm. I feel sexier just, like, for being smarter and having a college degree and dressing myself better. And he's sexier for, like, you know, he has a great job and he's really smart and has a good head of hair. Like, what the hell? Good for him. I'm going to flirt with a hot guy. Who I also happened to date for a really long time. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, hey. (laughs) So yeah, Musa. Finally, one person living or dead, whether you know him or not, who you wish well. So the other day in our building, we had a power surge and a bunch of the lights blew out. And it just made me really thankful for Thomas Edison. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to wish well Thomas Edison because I never realized how much I appreciated his inventions until all of them exploded. <laughs> It's just really hard like when you're in the habit of coming home and you flip on certain light switches or you or you do the little twisty on the side of the lamp for, for particular lights that are your favorites. I love those. And when the bulbs are out or the, the filament in the middle of them does that clinkity, clinkity, clinkity yeah. shake, you know, it's just like makes you a little sad, but also like, wow, someone sat down to make this for me. Right. And that was Tommy Eddie. And <laughs> I just want Tommy boy. Tommy boy. Tommy boy. He might give Musa a run for his money. Mm. I think Thomas Edison is so fucking hot. <laughs> he does have like he does have a very successful business. Yeah, totally. Oh, he's so smart. And on that on that note, I'd also like to thank Alexander Graham Bell for mm. that telephone. Oh yeah. The other day, I was with one of the girls that I nanny, and she saw a rotary phone with the spinny numbers, and she was like, "What the hell is that?" Oh my god, no, <laughs> no, no, no. It was like worlds colliding. 
I told I told her another time she was like so your hair was really curly when you were a little kid I was like yeah it was so curly and I used to get all these horrible knots and she goes how curly and I was like oh you know like a telephone cord and she's like what is that oh no (laughs) last year when I was teaching dance um and I still say it I'll I'll go like okay be kind rewind and I realized like midway through the year that like none of my students were alive for VCRs so I oh, had to explain. Damn. I had to explain that there was a place called Blockbuster <laughs> where you used to rent VCRs, which are a lot like DVDs, but not. No VHSs. You used to rent VHSs. Yes. V- Did I say VCR? Yeah. Oh my god. Could you imagine if you rented, you the, rented whole the whole machine? machine. <laughs> you had to bring it back by a due date. Drop it off in a little library card kind of like slot. The last movies that people gave me like for holidays that were VHS were on VHS were the first two Harry Potter movies Mm. and Shrek. Okay. And so when you think about it that way, you're like, wow, that doesn't seem that long ago that Shrek was a revelant, like, yeah, you know, uh, not revelant, relevant, relevant. I didn't. We're so tired, guys. Guys, forgive us. We're just really tired. I'm so tired. Um, but yeah. Revelant, what the fuck? Um, that it was a relevant reference, and then if you think about that, that movie was released almost exclusively on VHS the first time it went out. That's Gross. crazy, right? That's crazy. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago, and now almost everything is. You know, when you see it on commercials, the other day it was the new Star Trek movie mm-hmm. that I saw on TV was advertising on Blu-ray and digital DVD, where yeah. you can only buy digi copies now. Which is wow. Yeah. I remember there was one of those like universal truths like listicles. And one of them was, can we just all agree to ignore whatever comes after Blu-ray? I don't want to have to start my movie collection all over again. I think we should ignore Blu-ray though. I did. I did ignore Blu-ray. I did too because you had to buy a separate player. See, that would be the thing. Like you made the joke about Blockbuster and you might have to buy a whole VCR. You had to literally you, go buy, and then each disc is like thirty nine ninety nine. Exactly, because they're smaller discs. <laughs> it makes no sense. No. No sense at all. Ugh. Ugh. There was this one time in college that this kid, Andrew, um, made us come over to his apartment and watch Avatar on DVD first, and then watch it on Blu-ray second to see the, <laughs> the difference between the two. That's like six hours of your life. It was horrible. It was horrible. Avatar is a horrible movie, and everybody knows <laughs> it. I never saw it. But the thing, you're not missing anything. You're okay. not missing anything. Fine. But the thing about it is like... There was no difference. He literally like would stop the Blu-ray version and be like, look at the clarity. And I'm like, Andrew, no one gives a fuck. Like, no, no one. It's not interesting. But you know, the one thing that did go well was cassettes to CDs. Oh yeah. We used to keep like a whole wall of, not a whole wall, what do we call it? A whole uh, shelving unit of cassettes. And that we was- We did too. That was very intense. Oh yeah. I'll never forget that I was in a horrible car accident in college and- Adele's uh, 21 had just come out and I was listening to it on CD like on repeat in the car. So um, my friend Will and I were in this horrible accident and everyone was safe. No one died, but um, it was very dramatic. And I remember, you know, the cars collide and they're spinning and flipping and fire and it was all very dramatic. The cars finally stop moving and it registers we've been in an accident. And Will turns to me and he's like, oh my God, are you okay? And all I hear is, but I set fire to the red. And the CD player like died and it wouldn't give me back my copy of 21. Uh. Right? So now every time I hear that fire to the rain song, I'm like, 
oh, CDs are the death of us. I had to go to Target and buy another copy. Oh, no. I had to go and buy a second copy of that CD because my car ate it when it got totaled. That's not the first time I've heard of a car eating a CD. Yeah. Like, just in general. Like, whether or not it's an accident. Like, I've heard of, I remember people being like, yeah, my car ate my CD, so now I have to buy another copy of... Jim Morrison. I'm just imagining that, like, the car is dying and it's like, oh, everything's hot. Oh, you hurt me. Oh, I mangled. I ran into that guy. Ugh. Nom, 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 yeah, nom. Right? You can't have this back. Yeah. Ooh. Like, <laughs> dang. Yeah. I used to, the dashboard used to rattle against the radio, so I used to take a Sacagawea coin because it was the only one that was fat enough and shove it between the two of them oh. so the rattling would stop. Because I have a bunch of Sacagawea dollars. That's a weird thing I have. <laughs> dollar dollar coins y'all dollar dollar coins it's all about them Sacagaweas <laughs> making it rain all about the Sackies it y'all <laughs> hurts <laughs> oh alright any final thoughts we are so loopy guys I I'm think, so sorry I think it's good to end on raining Sacagawea coins it is raining Sacagaweas y'all clink there you go amateur foley artist Amateur foliar. To be soon to be professional Foley artist. Oh, yes. I'm going to send my resume out to everyone. She's available, folks. Mm-hmm. All right. You can find us on social media at This Week's Thing on Twitter, Facebook.com slash This Week's Thing, This Week's Thing at gmail.com, and This Week's Thing.com. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, hopes, dreams, or, as Ian says, fears. Fears. Tell us your fears. We want to hear from you. We also desperately, desperately need five-star ratings and subscriptions to the show because that's how other people find us. Yeah. And please have everyone share our beautiful, delightful voices and stories. Yes. As Ian says, put us in your ears. Put us in your earballs. All right, Ian, where can people find you? You can find me at iBroski on the Twitter and the Insta and um, on Facebook. You just can search my name, Ian Brodsky, and... Uh, is it a fan page? I feel weird calling it a fan yeah, page. Yeah, facebook.com slash Ian. Yeah. And you can find me at Womanship on Twitter and Snapchat. Facebook.com slash Julia Claire Manship because oh, we're yeah. getting fancy. ClaireManship.com. And our website again is thisweeksthing.com. I'm Ian Brodsky. And I'm Claire Manship. And, and that, that was, was the thing, thing that happened, happened this week. week. Bye, y'all. Bye.